We are proudly sponsored by High Stride Equine Law. They understand that the horse industry can feel overwhelming when it comes to legal matters. A focus on champion results, High Stride strives to work with its clients to offer the best solution for each and every unique situation. Get started today at HighStrideLaw.com. Equine Law by Equine Attorneys. Hi, everyone. This is Regina. Hi, horse lovers. This is Lynn. This week on the Horse Industry Podcast. So hi, listeners. This is Lynn. And today I am with equine attorney, Jasmine Schlick. Hello, Jasmine. Hey, Lynn. Great to talk to you. So Jasmine, you have been a follower of the Horse Industry Podcast for quite a while. I think you were with us in the beginning on our hip vip. Absolutely. My mom and I listen religiously on the way to horse shows when we go. So we've, we've been with you from the beginning. I love that. I love it. And we were so excited when you reached out to us to become a sponsor because really it's such a perfect fit because our audience is so diversified in the horse industry. We're, we're not niched into one discipline. But but just really, we have all the way from you know horse lovers to exhibitors, cutters, miniature horse exhibitors, AQHA, APHA circuit. So it's a great a great avenue for you to talk about equine law. So Jasmine, you grew up showing quarter horses. I did. So my grandma, my mom, my aunt and uncle, uh, my brother all showed horses. So I was kind of just born born into it. And we started out with quarter horses. And then when I was nine, I was paralyzed, not horse related. Everybody always think it's, thinks that it's horse related. It wasn't. And that's where I found the miniature horses. So we went down to Kentucky State Fair so I could lead around the miniature horse. Uh, and the rest is history. We now have eight. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> so you do a lot of the driving classes. Yeah, that's definitely my favorite driving. And, and now I've recently purchased my first modern Shetland pony. So I'm having a lot of fun with that. A, a whole new challenge. Regina and my sister, Norma Swatalski. Norma and Regina both are very involved in the miniature industry. So there's a connection. I always say that there's such a in this industry, there's just, it's a small world. There's so many connections and so much networking to be done in the industry. And as I've been looking through your website at High Stride Equine Law, it only makes sense that if a horseman is seeking legal advice, that they would seek out a fellow horseman. So what a great opportunity for you to specialize and help out your fellow horsemen in the industry. It was it was kind of a, a no brainer for me uh, coming out of law school that I knew eventually I wanted to practice equine law. You know, us equestrians are are a bit of a different breed, and you know I think having a lawyer that understands the industry is is extremely important. So, Jasmine, was there a particular incident that drew you to equine law? Or just kind of a natural progression as you looked at, you know, your your schooling and where you wanted to specialize? I think it was just a natural progression. I mean, I thought if I could use my legal education and combine that with something that I absolutely love, you know, the horses, 
why would I not do that? And and then, you know, you see so many times where people will say, oh man, I wish I would have had a contract or I should have got a contract with that person, especially in the horse industry. I think we're kind of still living in the handshake world. Um, And unfortunately, that's just not going to cut it from a legal perspective. Do you find, like, I look at the industry and, you know, Kevin trained horses and we never, we we were afraid. Like, we like le- the legality was scary to me. I thought it was going to be very expensive and it was just scary to me. And as I've been researching for this episode, I think what would be scarier is not being protected and then having to to hire an attorney. So prevention is the best medicine, right? Absolutely. So I, you know, I try to tell my clients that all the time is that, you know, we're not, we're trying to prevent the, the worst case scenario by having these, you know, contracts or agreements in writing that we can come back to if, if we encounter an issue with someone that, you know, we thought we trusted or we're friends with. So that's really where I come in and and hopefully ease the process. Right. So it's a, it's a simple form, like an equine purchase agreement and contracts. Like that's really a, a simple form, a simple process for that agreement that I think that as horsemen, we overthink it and try to make it more complicated. Yeah, I, I think people, well, I think there's, it's kind of two pronged. I think people feel bad sometimes because, you know, horse, us horse industry, we're, we have, a friendship with our, our horse people. Right. And we don't want to be the people that say, well, you know, she didn't trust me. So she made me have a contract. No, it's not that it's just that we want to protect ourselves, you know? And I think you guys touched on a little bit, uh, in the insurance episode that our horses are our assets. Yes. You know, the horse industry is a multi-million dollar industry. So when we think about protecting our assets, we need to think proactively about ways to do that. So, you know, I wouldn't sell my home. My home's my asset. I wouldn't sell my home on a handshake. So why would I do that with my horse, which is another big asset of mine? Well, and the prices of horses these days are just astronomical. I mean, it's it's absolutely crazy. We've been we've been shopping for a horse for for my husband, and the the prices of horses is just astronomical and we would be insane not to protect ourselves in in that purchase and you know like I didn't hesitate in the last horse that I bought to do a pre-purchase exam like I went through that that piece of it and had that pre-purchase exam with the x-rays and the flexions and all of that but nowhere did we get a contract around the purchase of that horse. We assume that we're safe because of that pre-purchase exam and and that just doesn't cover everything. No, it, it really doesn't. And so in in situations like that, a lot of times I wouldn't recommend kind of a, a trial sale period agreement where, you know, it, your your purchase agreement would be valid as long as, you know, that 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 check comes in the way you want it to. So, you know, and just to 
kind of go back a little bit, the the purchase agreements can be very broad, but you know, the, depending on the people, they can be very complex too. It's it's really all in what you want. So if I'm selling a horse, I'm not necessarily going to have the contract. If I'm buying the horse, I want the contract. Do if somebody presents me with a contract, do I need to take it to an attorney and have it looked over? That's, I mean, that, of course, the attorney speaking is going to say that's always the best policy. But in, in flip to that, maybe you are the one selling the horse and you want to have an agreement with the people buying the horse. If, for example, like you said, you know, horses are extremely high priced right now, maybe it's going to be more like a monthly payment type of contract. You know, that's always an option. So, you know, in that situation, then the seller would want to have an agreement. So it, it's just, there. there's just so many different avenues and different agreements that based on the unique individual situation. Yeah. And I'm, I am reading from your web, a website and it just says that, you know, you to protect you and your equine from future disagreements, providing a detailed and clear cut agreement for every situation. And as horsemen, we're terrible. We don't wear helmets enough and we don't have enough <laughs> legal contracts, right? Correct. Absolutely. So let's go. We're going to go on to your to your next service. But it in here it talks about the litigation support and legal disputes. So, all right. So you didn't get a contract and now now you've got a dispute. So I've got to believe that you've seen all different kinds of disputes when it comes to sales, wrongful death, veterinary malpractice. It can get crazy. Absolutely. And I mean, the sky's the limit when it comes to that stuff. And, and this is where, you know, hopefully you have a, you had a really a good contract, um, which eases the litigation part. And, and maybe, you know, it's just getting someone to recognize enforcing that contract as opposed to, we didn't have a contract. Now here we are. So he said, she said, you know, who's right, who's wrong. And, and that can be years of litigation. Whereas, you know, if you have something in writing, that can definitely mainstream the mainstream the process. But you're you're absolutely right. I mean, from wrongful deaths to malpractice, it the the sky's the limit on that stuff, unfortunately. When we go to the veterinarian and they do injections on my horse. I never they never have me sign anything that that says that I waive them of any damage to my horse, you know, for an infection, etc. So, I guess I'm trying to understand why a veterinarian wouldn't why we wouldn't sign a like when you go to the doctor's office and have surgery for yourself, you sign a waiver that says you don't hold them liable. I don't think I've ever seen that from a veterinarian. And you're right. I mean, I've never encountered it either. Uh, but but the question is, why not? Right? Because if if they you know inject my horse and my horse comes up lame, you know, I'm going to go to them and say, hey, you caused this problem. And then there we are with litigation again. So you know why? I think people just they're not proactively thinking 
about what what could happen. Now this really like this makes you just want to go, hmm, like, oh my goodness, there's and I told you like this opened up a whole can of worms for me as I started re- doing the research and looking through some articles for things that people have sued over. And that's kind of where it comes into like equine liability waivers and disclaimers. And you used, used to see the the signs that say that the equine activity liability law and you know you think that if you hang up this sign in your barn that you're safe but that's not necessarily the case is it it's not so if if you read through and and I'll tell you most states have that that law and and they're pretty similar every state the language is pretty similar but when you actually go in and start reading you know I'm going to use Indiana for as a, an example cuz that's where I'm at the Indiana statute or Indiana code on that there's language that talks about uh, grossly negligent behavior relating to that. And if if it was negligent behavior or grossly negligent, then that that little provision that's supposed to protect you can be thrown out the window. So, you know, I tell people all the time in, in all facets of law, there is loopholes and everything. And uh, unfortunately, that's no different. And in a lot of those cases, it it would go to a trial and it would be, I guess, a, a jury that would determine if you were negligent, if, you know, for instance, you're standing by a gate and a horse kicks the gate and the gate hits you in the face and you've got damage. Like that's, I mean, that could absolutely go to to a jury, right? And that jury would have to find, you know, you liable or not. That's going to be very expensive. Absolutely. I mean, you're talking when you're talking about an attorney preparing for for a trial, you're talking about usually tens of thousands of dollars that you're looking at. So, you know, my argument would be why not have that extra layer of protection where you're having, for example, if you're running a boarding facility or a training facility, you're having your client sign a document where that negligent language is in that document and they're waiving that. So, you know, it, I know people, they don't want to pay a lot of times the upfront cost of these agreements. Um, but when you look at it, the long run and, and again, hopefully you never have to use that. Right. right. But should you have to, or, or should it come in play uh, in the future? You're, you're money ahead. That's for sure. <laughs> So it's almost like you need a double layer of security. First is having the proper amount of liability insurance. So having a good insurance agent and having the proper level of liability insurance. Because if something does go to litigation and you're covered by your insurance, your insurance will pay your attorney your attorney fees, correct? Uh that I mean that totally depends on the policy. So right. That's the general sense that, you know, your general in general uh, insurance policies will cover your attorney's fees. So if you've got the right insurance policy and then the right agreement, the right legal, the right borders, trainers, the right contract with your with your borders or your your customers. Absolutely. Yes. So it, it, you're right. It's, it's definitely two prong, but it, it's just an extra layer of protection and, and hopefully it should should it come into play it kind of streamlines the process 
So my personal opinion is that the legal world uses such big words and such strange terminology that it scares the normal human like me. (laughs) (laughs) So that's why we need somebody like you to, you've gone to school for all these years to interpret these agreements for us. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I try to use it as I common language as I can. Uh, and definitely when it comes to these agreements, um, you know, making sure that they understand what, what they're handing out or asking someone to sign. And, and that's definitely an important part of it as well. To keep it simple for your clients. Yes. Yeah. So I mean, like- I don't want, I don't want my clients asking, you know, their, for instance, if it's a trainer asking the, the client to sign a training agreement, you know, I don't want that person to not understand what they're even asking them to sign. That's not beneficial to anybody. Right. Absolutely. Consent forms. So what are consent forms? Consent to treat, can, like what, what would I need a consent form for? Yeah, absolutely. And this is, and I think this, this really does apply when your horse is somewhere else with someone else or, and I'll use the the trainer aspect again, you know, if, if you're, if you are caring for someone else's horse and let's say that horse goes down with colic, um, you call the vet, the vet comes out, you know, maybe, maybe you even send the horse to Purdue, for example. And then that person has a huge vet bill and they say, no, no, I didn't agree to let you send my horse to Purdue or to call the vet. You're responsible for that bill. So with these consent forms, you're having that person sign agreeing from the beginning that they can do X, Y, and Z with that animal so that hopefully down the road, there's no dispute in, well, I didn't give you permission to, to go through all those avenues. And now I have a multi-thousand dollar bill. So that's kind of what those are for. Gotcha. So if I'm a trainer and I have lots of friends that are a trainer, what do they need to have besides a consent? Like what else do they need to have in their contract to protect themselves? So I always suggest that they have a provision. And again, this is, you know, it depends on the trainer, but provisions such as, you know, late fees, if they're not getting their their training fees on time, you know, when the owner of the horse can come and visit, you know, I I know that (laughs) these poor trainers, you know, they're already giving up, you know, six, six days a week. Right. And then, you know, there's always that client that wants to come on Sunday, right? right. So, you know, and then as well as, like I said, consenting to veterinary treatment, um, it, it can be as, as specific as that person wants, you know? And it's so smart too. Like it, it really is to lay out kind of the rules for the barn in a contract makes it, you know, if if everybody in the barn is looking at the same agreement and signing the same contract and you're kind of spelling out, look, I work six days a week, Sunday is my family day with exception. I think it makes for a better understanding right up front between the, the horse trainer and the client. 
Absolutely. And it just, I think you're right. Then you're not getting into those situations of, well, you know, I wanted to come on a Sunday. You never said I couldn't or, you know, stuff like that. So I think it, in the long run, it helps to keep a healthy relationship with the trainer. You know, another example of kind of what's standard in those types of agreements is if the client is going to pull the horse from that training facility, they have to give, you know, 10 days notice or 30 days notice or something to that effect, which is helpful too, because, you know, these are, this is someone's business, right? They, they expect that paycheck every month and, and, you know, they're not, maybe not expecting to have a, a horse pulled 24 hours, right? Yeah. So, or, or pulled out in the middle of the night. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> I find know. that boarding facilities do a better job or more consistent with contracts than training barns. Do you see that? I think because like the boarding barns, I've seen so many worst case scenarios that they just have got a a boarding agreement ready for everyone where the trainers might be more lenient. I think you're, you're a hundred percent right. And I, and I don't know why that is, you know, I can say as a, as a client, I've never had this to sign a training agreement. And I do not understand that to be, to be quite frank. You know, it seems to me that would be the, the first thing you would want people to sign. But, well, let me ask you, did, did Kevin, when he was trained, did he have any agreement with his clients? Never, never. We mostly yeah. just sacrificed and did everything we could to bend over backwards, just keep the people with their horses paying their bills on time in our barn. Exactly. I mean, like, for instance, we had a we had a customer that had three horses in training with us. And horses are, a, it's a luxury, right? People pay their their electric bill, their gas bill, their mortgage. They're going to pay all of those first. And that luxury payment to the horse trainer, that's the last thing they pay. And we would literally, and we, we had this client that had three horses. They wrote us a bad check every single month. And it would be significant for us because, you know, we had to go buy feed and pay off you know, our, our bills and we had nothing in writing with these people. And we just continued to take the abuse because they had three horses with us. And so when the Mm -hmm. check did clear, we really needed the money. Like we, we were so not protected. Yeah. And and that's just such a perfect example. Unfortunately, I mean, I'm sorry you guys had to go through that, but I think, you know, you're definitely not the only ones, you know, I've, I've heard stories of, People will will have a horse with training. First of all, they don't pay the bill, but then, you know, they never come and get the horse and the horse is just there for months on end while the the trainer or the boarder is having to feed the horse. I mean, that's costly. So, and and there's no agreement. And I think if you had a, if, if the train, and I have a lot of trainer friends that listen to our podcast. So I, all of you, I hope you're listening to this and, and I will, I will sign a contract with, with our trainer. <laughs> but I mean, if, if you have that understanding up front and you know, as a, as a client that is leaving your horse with a trainer and you sign a contract up front that says you are, you are legally liable for paying your, your training on time and you sign a contract, you're going to be more apt to make sure that that check clears and you pay that bill just like every other bill that you're obligated to pay. 
Right. Because if you don't, first of all, I always include in these types of agreements, I always include late fees. Um, I've even put provisions where, you know, if, if somebody doesn't pay their, their training bill, let's say 60, they don't come and get the horse within 90, then that horse's ownership papers goes to that. So, I mean, that's just as, that's as detailed as we can, we can go, but yeah, you, you just have to protect yourself. You have to protect yourself. And I, I can't stress it enough. So let's say in a situation where as a trainer or even a boarding facility, you have somebody that's, that has, you know, two horses with you and they're not, they're not paying their board. So you, as the, as the farm owner, barn owner, you're, you're feeding those horses every month, taking care of them. At what point, if there's no contract, at what point can you take them to small claims court or how do you legally take over those horses so that you can sell them? Because like, right, the only way you can get them off your feed bill is to sell those horses and get them out of your barn. What, what, if you don't have a contract, what's the time limit? How does that work? Yeah. So in this, this becomes the exact problem. If you don't have a contract, it is so hard to show that, you know, you should be given those horses because listen, if you call whatever associate, let's say you have the, the, you know, the horses, what association they're with, you know, if you call that association and say, Hey, explain the whole situation they haven't paid their bill. I want the papers on that horse in my name. They're not going to be able to do anything legally. No. So you're going to have to go through the court system and probably get a court order to do that. But that could take months. I mean, it could take years. Months and <laughs> yeah. a lot of money because your services aren't free. Right. And and let's be honest, um, we're you know all horse lovers and we're not going to just let that animal starve. So of course we're going to pick up the, the feed bill, but, and you know, this is kind of where the legal system, for example, the judge who might be, you know, they're not going to understand necessarily all the costs that's incurred in that. Um, So you're going to have to try to show the judge that. And it's just, it it snowballs into a, a very, very poor situation for everybody involved. Right. And and like you said, you're getting the registration papers is going to be next to impossible. So those horses, if they're registered quarter horse or Arabian or whatever, and you you don't have their registration papers, you you can't sell them for their true value. So they're really worthless near almost in your barn. Yeah, they're they're hay burners. <laughs> they are they are hay burners. That I love that term. That was my dad's term. But they they are hay burners, and they're taking up a stall in your barn. So the best thing to do, my friends that are horse trainers and running boarding boarding facilities, is have a contract because if you have a contract, you can get yourself out of the situation. Absolutely, and and you know even if so, let's say you have a contract. Um, you know, you, you file it with the court, the courts, a contract is a contract, you know, it, in the, in the legal aspect of things, a contract is a contract. It doesn't necessarily matter if it's a contract for purchasing a home or 
boarding a horse, right? So, you know, a judge is going to recognize a contract. Hey, there's a valid contract. Here's the terms. That horse now belongs to you. Done. So what is the step? So if I'm a trainer and I have a, a contract with with my client and they didn't pay their bill and they're at the at the the terms in the contract where it says that I can take over this horse. What as a trainer, who do I go see? Where do I take that contract? How how do I how do I what's my next step? Uh call me. So is that is that what it is? I mean, do you so then do they need to they need to hire an attorney then to enforce the contract? Well, I mean, first of all, and I, and I tell all my clients this, you first, the cheapest, best way, of course, is to always work it out with amongst yourselves. But as we know, sometimes that just doesn't happen. Now, I like to think that if you have a, a contract that's legally enforceable, people tend to uh, respect that a little more and respect the situation a little more. So, you know, first and foremost, try to work it out. If that doesn't, I mean, it, and maybe it's going to be a letter from an attorney that says, Hey, we have this contract. If you don't come, if you don't pay your outstanding bill and get this horse within 30 days, I'm going to I'm going to file a lawsuit against you. Um and and maybe that works, maybe it doesn't. If it doesn't, then you just go through the legal the legal avenue. Next topic. Uh, partnerships and syndicates. Stallions are very expensive. Mares are very expensive. There's the, I mean, embryos. People are selling embryos right now. What type of a, it's not, I mean, like I'm thinking like in a partnership agreement and you own a stallion with another party and you and you put the name of the stallion in your LLC or you put it in joint names. What do you recommend? What kind of paperwork do you need to have for, for syndication for partnerships on these high dollar horses? So we do a kind of a standard part, partnership agreement as to and again, this can be as detailed as as the people want. Uh, you know, it's usually about who has rights to this to the stud. Who's the person that's going to approve the mares? You know, if God forbid one of the partners dies, how does that all work out? Uh, usually, I try to tell my clients to make it that if God forbid one of the partners dies, the horse goes automatically to the to the remaining partner. So, you know, it can be very, very detailed as, as detailed as people want it. So it's another one of those things that if you do the work up front, it's a lot less expensive in the long run versus trying to figure it out after the fact through the court systems. Absolutely. And so an, another kind of very key piece to those is uh, any winnings, if that comes into play, stud feed, how how is that going to be divided? You know, who's going to be responsible for vet bills, farrier bills, training bills, you know, stuff like that. Jasmine, I see a lot of ownerships of horses instead of being the individual now, they're an L they're owned by an LLC. And does that come back to the partnership, the syndicate, the investment agreements? Is that why we see an LLC versus an individual? Yeah, absolutely. And I and I think it's just another way to kind of protect that horse if it's in an LLC or a syndicate with a group of people. I see I see a lot of horses being owned. I trust 
as well, you know. And so sometimes if kind of keep bringing up death, unfortunately, but uh, LLCs are very statute based creatures. So there's always operating agreements with an LLC. So, you know, if members pass or it dissolves, it kind of just helps to divide the assets. So that could be one of the reasons why a horse would be in an LLC or a trust of something of that nature. Let me ask you this question. Jasmine, if a if a horse is in one spouse's name and that spouse dies, does it have to go to probate to get the ownership transferred into the other spouse's name? Like, I guess your horse needs to be part of your will and your wishes for that horse, right? Yeah, so so absolutely. Like we talked about, the horse is an asset of, like in your situation, of Kevin. So hopefully Kevin has a will that says Lynn gets all my assets when I pass. And so, you know, that horse would be included in that. But if not, then yeah, it would it would go through the probate process. And and that's why I always kind of suggest to people, you know, there's various reasons why you only have one person's name on an ownership, but a lot of people put, you know, their spouse and them and they have that and provision. So for example, you know, I have on my horse, I have my mom as a co-owner. So, you know, it's Jasmine and Tracy Schlick. So if, God forbid, you know, I would pass away, the horse would just automatically go to her. Gotcha. So all of us that are listening today, check out your registration for your horses to make sure you're covered there. Yeah. And one one other point on that, and this is where, you know, wording can be very tricky. If you put and, so let's say, for example, you're going to own a horse with a friend and you put Jasmine and whoever that person is. So any any transfer or ownership on that horse, both people would have to sign. But if you put Jasmine or, then only one has to sign. So I always try to tell people you really want to put that and language, not or, just to <laughs> kind of protect yourself uh, in the future. Again, I always feel like I'm looking at the worst case scenario, but that's kind of my job, I guess. It's your job. No, we we <laughs> pay you to look at the worst case scenario and protect us. So, all right. So let's talk about some of the craziest things that you have ever seen. And we we can we'll leave the name out to protect names out to protect the innocent. But like for one of the things that as I was doing my research and I looked through, I was suing because there was a mound of fire ants by the gate to the arena and they got bit by fire ants. And so they were suing the barn owner for not doing due diligence on their property and they got bit by fire ants. Like they, it it (laughs) actually was a case. I just can't believe it. It was dismissed, but it was a case. Well, that's, I'm glad to hear it was dismissed, man. But somebody had, but, but they actually, I mean, like these people, these, the farmer, they had to get an attorney because of fire ants. Like it, it cost them some money. I'm sure it did. It probably cost them a lot of money. And hopefully it was just outright dismissed and it wasn't dismissed because, you know, there was a settlement agreement or something. But yeah, that's pretty wild. 
How about you? Like what's one of the most common things that you run across in your business? Is it contracts? Is it, is it injury? Like what's, what do you see the most? Definitely the most is, you know, contracts, just getting, getting agreements with, with different partnerships, training agreements and, and purchase agreements. That's definitely the bulk of my practice. Unfortunately, we do see some litigation, but not not much, which is, you know, that's good. I, I like to think it's because we have these contracts in place that we don't have to go down that that path. Right. Absolutely. And if you do your and, and one of the things that I read too that and again I keep repeating this, but if you do your work ahead of time as far as protecting yourself legally, it's gonna save a lot of money in the end. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I know it. Y- yeah. And, I, and I'm sorry to talk over you too, but, and then it also, you know, one of the things that I also picked up on my research in this is that you want to, if you're dealing in equine litigation, you want to hire somebody that's familiar with the industry and the terminology, because that's, I mean, you're paid by the hour. And if, if you're hiring an attorney, that's not familiar with the terminology, it's going to cost you more money as they research it. So hiring an attorney that specializes in in the equine industry is an absolute must. I like to think so. I certainly, you know, market the firm like that because I think it is so important, you know, to know the the nuances of the horse industry. You know, let's be honest, horse horse people, we're a little crazy. Uh, <laughs> a different breed. And, you know, not every attorney is going to understand kind of the the background of the horse industry and kind of the craziness of it. So I, I definitely feel like that is a huge to, to have that knowledge and to have been in those, you know, those different situations myself, whether it be a, as a client or a somebody, you know, boarding a horse or something to that effect. And we're all horse lovers, right? We're not we're not showing horses and having horses and training horses if we're not horse lovers. And sometimes the emotion of the moment or the emotion of of owning that horse takes over any sensibility at all in our minds. Definitely. <laughs> I just want to buy so. it. Who wants who wants to take time for an attorney? Or right. that pressure, I want it now. <laughs> of, right? Well, or or this one came upon me recently. I've got another buyer. They're going to buy this horse tomorrow. So you want this horse? Because if you don't want this horse, you got to let me know because I've got somebody else that'll buy it tomorrow. So then you rush to purchase without protecting yourself. Running to the bank, right? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Overnighting the check without any sort of agreement whatsoever to protect yourself, except for maybe that pre-purchase exam. Yes, definitely so. Jasmine, anything that we didn't cover today that you feel would be an important topic to our listeners? I think we we pretty much covered the basics. I just always stress, uh, you know, to protect yourself and, and protect your asset, which is the horse. And, you know, the, I feel the best way to do that, of course, is to have these agreements and forms, waivers all of that effect. But, you know, any, any questions regarding any of that, we're always happy to answer. Yeah. And we look forward to hearing from people. What's the best way for people to reach out to you, Jasmine? 
Is it give your office a call? Is it on email? We're going to post all of your contact information on our Horse Industry Podcast website. There is a link to High Stride Law on our website. We are going to plaster you all over social media so that our listeners will be able to find you. But we really appreciate your time today and attention to this subject. And Jasmine, the first call is free, right? I mean, if if somebody reaches out with a basic question, you're going to give them some guidance and then let them determine if it's something that they want to seek a professional opinion on. Absolutely. Consultations are always free. And, you know, I know a lot of people think they might have a silly question, but but no question is, you know, dumb or, or stupid. And we welcome all of them. So reach out, give us a call, email either way, and, and we'll get back to you as, as soon as possible and, and hopefully put your mind at ease. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. That yeah, was great to be here. Thank you. So that's our story this week. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to spending more time with you and sharing stories of our industry. See you next week.